Once again, as we gather together here this morning, I want to wish you what I hope is a happy new year. At least I hope that it's still a happy new year for you. I say that because even though we're only into our second week into this new year, I'm guessing that there's, at least for some of us, if not a lot of us, that sense of the novelty and the excitement of the new year having already started to wear off. I'm guessing that for many of us, those resolutions, those New Year's resolutions that sounded so good on December 30th or 31st, maybe even on January 1st, 2nd, maybe even into the 3rd when they were sounding pretty good, I'm guessing now that we're really getting into the routine of those things or trying to and realizing the reality that comes with trying to change some things and new resolutions and how hard they are, that probably some of our excitement has begun to wear off. I'm thinking that for some of us, we had looked for so long, so forward to those special gatherings when extra family was going to be coming in or extra time off of work or we could get together with other family or friends. That's gone. And our families have left and headed back and those holiday breaks are over. For so many of us, work is back into full swing. For our primary and secondary students, they are back at school full-time, and most, if not almost all of our college students, if they're not back yet, they will be in a very, very short amount of time, and it's going to be a long time before the next break gets here. And then we gather together here this morning, and today's a little bit of an exception because it's a little bit warmer, but here we are in January, and we realize that consistent warm weather is still a long ways off. All of these things can make January not so happy. It can make January hard, tedious, long, gray. And for many of us, maybe some of those dreams that we had for the future, those dreams of a new year where we're going to do new things and wonderful new days coming our way are starting to be threatened by the reality of the same old thing continuing to dominate our lives because old habits are just so hard to break. So unless you are my son, Zach, I doubt most of us are thinking too much about the future and what's coming up in the days ahead. We're just trying to get by from one day to the next. I say unless you're my son, Zach, because Zach apparently is always thinking into the future, unbeknownst to my wife, Jen, and I, and because this past week, Zach shared with us, as only Zach can, where this came from, we have no idea, but he said, Mom... And he's totally serious when he told us this. He said, Mom, when I propose to my wife someday, it is going to be really special. And we're like, oh, that's great. You know, what are you thinking? He says, it's going to be really special. It's either going to happen at Fly World, the trampoline place, or Wendy's. (laughs) And Jen and I were like, shoot for the stars, Zach. You know, shoot for the stars. So, all that to say, I hope that it is a happy new year for us. I hope that we are looking to the future with excitement and great anticipation and a sense of excitement and newness, but I do have a feeling that for many of us, it's maybe not quite the happy new year that we had originally intended. And when we're not as happy, we're also not as fully alive as we often wish that we could be. That's one of the reasons that we're taking today in the next couple of weeks to work our way through the book of Ephesians here in in this series together. Because Ephesians is a book that outlines for us what it means to be fully, completely, utterly alive in Jesus Christ. And going through the book of Ephesians gives us that opportunity. So if you have not done it yet, please start reading through Ephesians yourself. 
or join a small group that's going through Ephesians or do a combination of both because when we do all those things together and then come here on Sundays and share in it together and study it together, it has that much more impact in our lives. We're going to be covering one chapter a week, so it's going to take us six weeks to be working our way through Ephesians. Here's the general picture that we face with Ephesians this morning. Most scholars believe that Paul is the author of Ephesians, but one of the things that Paul does here, he uses a different style of language and a lot of different phrases that is very different from his other writings, to the point that a lot of scholars wonder exactly what's going on there. And when Paul does this, he's writing to a group of churches in a place called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a city in the geographic region of Asia Minor. And so whenever Ephesians was being written to this city of Ephesus, there were some other cities around at the time with some pretty weird names, names like Smyrna, Pergamum, Sardis, and probably my favorite, Philadelphia, although not our Philadelphia. This is over in the, uh, across the sea. And more than likely, Paul was addressing a number of churches because when he writes in the book, there's very few times that he gives a very specific reference as if writing to one church. So most likely, he's writing to a group of churches, and Paul's addressing an issue there that is an old problem that we still have today. And it's the problem of getting along with one another. It's the problem of division. And we have this issue all the time from very small and significant things all the way up to major things that affect and even threaten lives in our world. And we see this all the time. So for you parents out there or grandparents that maybe are taking your grandkids or parents with their young kids and they're sitting in the back seat, you know this, you hear this all the time, you're riding along and you hear, mom, dad, he touched me, she got into my space and there's this friction that starts and they start to be divided and they're not very happy with each other. I mean, that's a very small example, but we know very well in our world that division is everywhere. It is division that keeps opposing political parties from coming into agreement to move a country forward. It is division that causes one country to rise up against another. It is division that causes one religious group to go against another, at times threatening lives. Division's a pretty serious thing, and that's the issue that Paul's addressing here this morning. Now, Paul's addressing it between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. He's addressing it between Christians who are familiar with the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament, and then Gentile Christians who are Christians because of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's addressing these folks and trying to get them to come together in a way that they previously hadn't been. And their division is hurting them. They are missing out on the fullness of life together, and they're missing out on the fullness of life with God and even in their own personal lives. That is the general picture of what's going on in Ephesians here this morning. Today, specifically, we are jumping into Ephesians chapter 2. And before we even go very far to Ephesians 2 this morning, I don't do this very often, but I want to take just a few moments and basically lay out my cards for what we're going to do here this morning in this particular chapter. If you've ever been in church very much, or if you happen to know anybody who's ever gone to seminary, you may have heard of the infamous three-point sermon. It used to be in seminary, you were always trained to make three points every week and let people take those three points and go on their way and kind of mull over them. Well, maybe it's because it's the winter and it's kind of gray and, you know, I know we're just kind of getting back in the swing of things after the holidays. So we're not going to have a three-point sermon. We're going to have a two-point sermon here this morning. And here are the two points that I want to ask us to think about and take away. Number one, according to Ephesians chapter two, we become more fully alive when we realize one In Jesus Christ, God has broken down the barriers between us and God. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, it's in Jesus that we find life and are connected to God. Now notice what we are doing in this process, you and I as human beings. Nothing. It is Jesus who comes, 
before us, before you and I ever do anything. This is not about what Jesus requires of us. It is about what God has done for us through Jesus. This is why this is a mercy issue. We come and we receive that which we did not deserve. And it's interesting, really, this concept of mercy. It's never going to make, make sense outside of who Jesus is. We will never on our own be moral enough or good enough to say, hey, let's be a merciful people. It takes the example of Jesus Christ himself showing us what mercy is. Jesus is the sole source of mercy. There is no motive for mercy other than Jesus. So this division that exists between us and God, the only way that it's remedied is because of Christ himself who moves away the division and makes a connection for you and I between God where previously there was none. That's verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. The second point is this, that in Jesus Christ, God has broken down the barriers now between us and others. So first, the division, verses 1 to 10, is removed between us and God. Verses 11 to 22, the division between us and others is removed. That's it. Fullness of life found in connection to God first. The division between us and God is gone. That leads to connection with others, the elimination of division with others. That's it. Now, I say that, and I have a feeling that at least some of us are thinking, really? That's it? That's, that's the great grand secret and mystery of Ephesians chapter 2? That's not very exciting. That's not very enthralling. We find fullness of life by connecting with Jesus first and then connecting with our neighbors and others. Okay, give me more than that. I could have told you that. But I wonder if we really do realize what's being offered here. Because to make these two things happen, this connection to Jesus first, and then the connection to other people, there is a gift that is offered in both instances that eliminates division that's in short supply in our world today. But it is a gift that is so desperately needed. Did you catch it when it was shared earlier in Scripture? Here's what it says in Ephesians 2. I'm going to read this, and I will give you a clue and see if you can figure out what the gift being offered is. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh, following its thoughts and desires. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace you have been saved. Did you catch it? I hope so. We're talking about the gift of mercy. Now, I read that like that on purpose because, honestly, you and I might say to ourselves, hey, I know the Bible is important, or I know that words of life are found in Scripture, but really, truthfully, don't we more often treat God's Word like I just read it? We take these words of life, and we take these holy words that are offered to us, and we, we diminish them, we neutralize them, we neuter them until they become just these bland, passe words. 
And we take what is holy and grand and life-giving and powerful, and we make it bland and boring and average and lifeless. And with no gift is this more evident the case oftentimes than with the gift of mercy. Even saying it's kind of dull. Mercy doesn't sound overly exciting. We equate it with, you know, be nice, kind, compassionate. It sounds kind of dusty and old and antiquated. But notice what's going on in Ephesians here this morning. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul is contrasting the old life that they used to live, these Ephesians, the life they used to live when Christ was not in their life. And then they come along and this gift of mercy is offered. And they can live a new way that's different from the old ways that they used to live. But God who is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4. In so many ways, it's this gift of mercy that's a key pivot point in this passage. We were once as good as dead. We had no life, and now we are given life in Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians 2.4 tells us. And then after that comes this great passage. And for many of us, we love the idea of grace. And we tend to focus on grace. And one of the most beautiful descriptions of grace is found here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For it is by the grace of God that you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. And many people often refer to this passage in Ephesians 2 as one of the epic grace chapters in the whole Bible. And for very good reason. Grace is a tremendous gift that is given to us. We are saved by grace. But... What does grace look like? Where does grace come from? Why does God offer grace? And the answer to all of those questions is mercy. The word for mercy is a word called elios in the Greek. It means to have compassion on, to have pity upon, to receive with mercy. In other words, mercy is a gift from God to us. It is the gift that leads to God's grace. Mercy is an expression of grace. It's part of what God's grace looks like. To me, it's like the front end of grace that we receive. The primary reason that any of us can experience grace is because the God that we serve is a compassionate, loving God who's pulling for us, who has a tenderness towards us, who has compassion with us. And therefore, because God feels that way towards us, God offers us this gift of grace. But it's the gift of mercy that reveals the DNA from which God's grace is birthed. It's about what God has done for us. If God were not compassionate, if God were not first pulling for us and tender towards us, there's no way that God would turn around and offer us grace. That's why God is grace-filled, but God is, first of all, merciful. It's not about what we do to earn our way to God. It's about who God is and what God has done for us despite what we did or do not do. Here's the interesting thing about this information, at least it was for me. When I was kind of looking into this this week and kind of thinking about mercy and grace and other things, I realized something I had never realized before. If you look up the word mercy in Scripture, you'll see it comes up 126 times, okay? If you look up the word grace, it actually comes up 124 times. So these two words, almost identical in the amount of references in Scripture for each of them. But here's what's interesting. The word mercy appears 71 times in the Old Testament and then 55 times in the New Testament. But the word grace only appears 10 times in the Old Testament, but 114 times in the New Testament. 
So they occur with the same amount of frequency, but they are distributed differently. So what we see first in the Old Testament when we're learning about God and who God is, what is it that we notice? That God is a merciful God. We see that God's character and makeup in the Old Testament is one of mercy. That's why in the Old Testament, God is universally acclaimed as merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and steadfastness for one another and towards us. It's the character of God that is revealed primarily in the Old Testament, that of mercy that lets the gift of grace then be offered in the New Testament. God is rich in mercy first in the Old Testament to then offer us life and grace that comes in the New Testament. Let that sink in for just a moment. That means we do not earn our way to God. We simply recognize that the gift of mercy in Jesus Christ is offered to us. And once we realize that God's gift of mercy is offered to us, once we embrace that, then we receive the grace and the new life that comes from it. This is a really big deal. Last week, we had an amazing service here. Those of you that got to be here, we saw seven different students, ages 12, 13, 14, join fully into the life of the church. They were called confirmands. They said, we want to take this step of faith and become more fully alive in this way. Of those seven students, three were baptized. There was lots of life going on up here. One of the things each of those confirmands had to do, they spent 12 weeks with different mentors. Now think about that. That's a pretty big deal. To be a mentor for 12 different weeks, that meant they were getting together every week. They were studying together every week. Some of those mentors, they didn't even have much of a connection with the confirmands prior to the start of this process. The confirmands didn't do anything to earn the approval of the mentors. They didn't pay them and say, hey, would you meet with me once a week and study together? They didn't work for them. They didn't help them in any way. And yet these mentors came along and every week met with these students in this really significant way. Why would those mentors do that for those confirmands and those students? Mercy. Those mentors were pulling for the confirmands. Those mentors had compassion on them, wanted to be with them. And so when they got together and shared together, because of the compassion of the mentors, those, those students who were confirmed received a, a support and a wholeness of life that they didn't otherwise have. And why? Not from anything they had earned but from mentors who said, I love you, and I will care about you, and I will walk with you, and I will pull with you, and I'll get together with you every single week. And because of that, these students experience new life. So it is with God's love for us. Nothing we can do can earn it. It comes as a merciful gift to us. We can only receive it as it's offered to us. Because this God is compassionate towards us and tender towards us. This God, through the gift of mercy, makes us alive in Jesus Christ. So I will say it again. This is a really big deal. The gift of God's mercy is literally the difference between life and death. I just saw this for myself last weekend. I had an opportunity to go to our Celebrate Recovery service on Sunday evenings, and a person who struggles with mental illness shared her story with great courage. It was such a powerful story, and I can't share all of it here with you, but I want to share part of it with you. Due to the mental illness that she has had, she has literally spent years and decades pushing away other people in her life to the point that she was utterly and completely alone. And she had reached such a point of desperation that this is what the person shared. She said, I came home one night and I decided this all finally had to end. 
I gathered all the medications I had been prescribed over the last month, washed them down with a bottle of wine, ordered my favorite pizza so I would have something to keep it all down in my stomach, and crawled into bed for what I was sure would be the very last time. Three days later, I woke up in my own bed in a pool of vomit, dazed and very confused. And then she says this, that this realization hit her. She said, after 20 years, four unsuccessful suicide attempts, countless hospitalizations, and feeling totally alone in this world, I was tr truly, completely devastated and at rock bottom. I was fired from my job a week later, was about to be evicted from my house, have my car repossessed. I did not qualify for unemployment. I had no income and, of course, no savings. I had given away or sold most of my belongings and began looking for a woman's shelter to take me in. This is death in every way. But then mercy, God's mercy. In God's compassion, God sent one person to show compassion to her. And in this case, a sister that she had pushed away and alienated, a sister came back to her, and despite that sister's anger, took her in. And that sister got her connected here at First Church. And as a result, this person shared, I loved First Church for my first Sunday. I began attending regularly. I was truly broken in spirit when I arrived, but immediately began to respond to the music, the messages, and the services that I attended. And then it wasn't until another gift of mercy, someone invited me to celebrate recovery that my faith really began to develop. And from the first moment of walking in to celebrate recovery, it was the most welcoming, accepting, loving environment I had ever felt. I cried during the message that Sunday night and again during small group. Over the next few weeks and months, my story began to unfold in my small group, and I was able to share things I had never shared before. As I began to open my heart and share with others, my faith started to grow. I began to pray regularly and often for the first time in my life. In the past, I had tried to change my medications and change jobs and move to new cities, but I had never changed or trusted my faith. I was just putting Band-Aids on my mental and physical health. It wasn't until I allowed God to change my spirit, and hear this, to receive God's mercy that I could truly have a chance to be mentally healthy. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. My life is now new. Do we hear that? Death to life, more fully alive transformation. This is what happens when the division between us and God is removed, and that division is removed because of Jesus Christ. And that's what Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is telling us. And then once we receive that mercy, that gift, we can offer it to others, and the division between us and others is then gone. Again, I don't think we realize how big a deal this is, how powerful it is to offer mercy to others. This is way more than being nice to other people. We're talking about showing them mercy, having compassion upon them, having tenderness upon them, pulling for them. Mercy is one of the chief attributes of the God of Israel, and so it's also the byproduct of a church community that is shaped by the love of Christ. What this means is that if we are a merciful people, we also ought to live in such a way that in this world we show not just niceness, but mercy to all that we meet. We don't offer mercy to try to be good. We don't offer mercy to try to be moral. We offer mercy because God first gave mercy to us. 
Remember, Paul is writing at least in part because these people are having a problem. They are divided. They cannot get along with one another. So what is Paul's solution? He doesn't say to them, hey, you just got to live into more human inclusiveness. He doesn't say more cultural pluralism. He doesn't say, hey, everyone, why can't we just all get along? Rather, he makes an appeal to God who is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4, asking them that once he received that mercy, because he received that mercy, now turn around and offer it to one another. Only that will remove the division between those of you who are at odds with one another. Notice Paul does not say, we, you and I, are rich in mercy. He says, God who is rich in mercy. So because of that, we can offer mercy to others as a life and a gift because that's what was given to us. Now, I want to be very clear here. I am not talking about offering mercy to those we already like. Jesus says anybody can do that. Jesus says love our enemies with this type of mercy. And here's where it gets real, everyone. We all love mercy for ourselves. We all want to be shown mercy in our own walk. We crave mercy. We, we, we all believe we deserve that chance. But when we think about it, when we really think about it, and we consider mercy being given not just to me, but also to my enemies, mercy goes from being a very nice, cute concept to being downright offensive when we think about applying it to others, especially our enemies. One of my favorite signs of the church when it's working as God intends is it's the only place, it's the only organization in the whole world where you can really find unity among diversity. There is no other organization or group like it in the world. That's the reason that we can have young and old, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, liberal and conservative, sitting right beside each other and encouraging each other and loving each other and worshiping together. That is a sign of mercy of the living God, and you don't find that anywhere else. It goes beyond that. I jokingly say that it's, it's mercy that allows a Duke fan to sit beside a UNC fan and not get into a huge fight with them. It is mercy that allows a Steeler fan, particularly today, to get along with a Bengals fan and not get into too much trouble. It's what allows a music lover of ballet to sit beside and encourage and love country line dancers and break dancers and those who do the whip and the nae and everything else. But church... Church, mercy goes way beyond this. And here's where mercy gets offensive. The gift of mercy is what lets those of us who think that guns should be outlawed love everyone among us who thinks that every single person should have a gun and own a gun. Not nice, be nice towards, but love them. Mercy is what lets those of us who cannot stand President Obama Love every single person who thinks Obama is the best president we've ever had. Mercy is what lets those of us who think that every refugee should be kept out of our country love every person who thinks that every refugee should be let in. Mercy is what lets Republicans love Democrats, and mercy is what lets those of us on one side of the issue of homosexuality love those on the other side of the issue. 
And let's be clear here this morning. I am not saying that we have to agree with somebody else or compromise our convictions to be merciful to others, but mercy becomes the witness. Mercy points to a different way. Mercy offers life and unity in a divided and hurting world, and our world is desperate for a life and unity. Our world is tired of division. Our world is at odds with one another, and it gets that everywhere. It craves someplace, somewhere where a different witness can be offered, and who can offer that? witness, the people of God because of Jesus Christ and the gift of mercy. See, mercy is not just a cute concept. It gets at the very heart of the nature of the God that we serve. Mercy becomes the witness. It shows who we serve. We were diametrically opposed to God. We were enemies of God. But we receive as a gift the grace-filled gift of mercy that gives life. We receive this from a God who showed mercy when his own tormentors were killing him and nailing him to a cross. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We show and we live mercy not because of our own moral or ethical strength. We offer mercy to others because it is the gift that Jesus has offered to us. And only when we learn to do this will the world experience more life than death. Only through mercy does the world become more fully alive, which in turn lets us as individuals become more fully alive. We tend to forget mercy was the revolutionary, defiant act that Jesus hurled in the face of the empire when he was on this earth. Mercy was the main attraction as well as the chief repulsion in the evangelism of the Roman Empire centuries ago. It was Christian mercy that made the Christian minority a real threat. Mercy was the one Christian practice that most baffled the observers of the livers, livers, those who lived out the faith. There was an emperor named Julius, and he said that he, he couldn't stand Christians. He had a tremendous animosity towards the Christians, and yet even he acknowledged it's this Christian philanthropy towards strangers. It's the care that they give even to the graves of the dead. It's the way in which they life, live their life and conduct their life that has done the most to spread their faith. In short, it was Mercy. For the imperial Romans, it was the strangest, most countercultural of Christian practices, and they just couldn't comprehend it. Why? Because mercy doesn't come from us. It is a gift from on high. It is a gift from Jesus Christ, from God to us. So I ask us very simply this day, church, where in our lives do we need to become more fully alive? Where do we crave life? even right now? Is there a division in our life between us and God? Then right here and right now, may we receive the gift of God's mercy, inviting Jesus Christ into our lives so that there's no more division between us and God. We don't have to be good enough or faithful enough. We're not so awful that that cannot happen. God is a merciful God. So may we receive that gift. And if there's a division between us and somebody else, us and some enemy, whether it's one person or a group of people, 
then let us, because of the mercy God offers to us, offer the healing gift of mercy to them that new life might occur. And it will bring new life, not only to them, but to us. That all of us together might become more fully alive. May one of our prayers going forth be very simply, in the best sense possible. Lord, have mercy.